Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us as we step right into this next four weeks of a series in our Advent season called A Light in the Darkness. And today we join with Christ followers all over the world who are preparing for Advent, meaning the coming of Jesus Christ. And this season, uh, it really helps us to connect with our incarnational God, the God of all creation, who chose to become flesh and blood for us. And as Eugene Peterson put it, he moved right into the neighborhood. And our desire within this series is that the Holy Spirit will reveal God's truth to you and challenge your mind and shape your heart and really change how you live for Christ as you prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the light of the world. So with that, as we begin, let's pause here and pray. Join with me. Father in heaven, thank you for coming to us pursuing us and providing a way to be with you through the faith and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being our light, our hope and salvation in the darkness of life. And Lord Jesus, please illuminate your word to us today and help us to walk in the light with you each and every day. Amen. A light in the darkness and a light in your darkness and mine. See, in Genesis chapter 1, you know, God distinguishes the difference between darkness and light. You know, the God who created all things started to bring the world to life, and he created a great light and a lesser light, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. Then in Exodus, right, God changed it up, and he became light, a light to deliver and lead his people out of slavery and darkness. He began with a lesser light, right? A burning bush to grab the attention of Moses and to identify himself as Yahweh God. And then later he became a great light. He did a pillar of fire actually for the lost people of Israel to follow them uh, so that they could walk to freedom. And then we bounce to the New Testament. And then there's a lesser light, but a bright star in Matthew chapter 2 that grabs the attention of wise men as they head out towards finding who this Christ child might be. And then in Luke 2, there is a greater light because the glory of the Lord and his angels light up the darkness to point the shepherds to the city of David because a Savior, right? One who is the Christ, the Lord, had arrived. And then years later, Jesus stood before many in this epic scene in John chapter 8, verse 12, and he says and proclaims in a loud voice, right, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So throughout Scripture, God has used light in the darkness to get the attention of his people, and today, nothing's changed. Jesus calls us to follow him because he is the greatest light. He's the light of the world. 
right, who calls us to follow him when we find ourselves in the darkness of life. The darkness is easily described in the passage we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1 as really separation or isolation, fear, anxiety, sin, and shame, and pain, and suffering, chaos, and confusion. Whew, the list goes on. Right? We will see God showing up in a really unique way with the purpose of leading his people out of the darkness and towards the light of Christ. So that you and I, we can put our trust, our hope, and our faith in him as we discover more of who Jesus is and who it means or what it means uh, to follow Jesus and become part of God's people and part of the kingdom of God. So today we're going to look at chapter 1 of Luke and we are landing right in the middle of that chapter and surrounding it we're going to see two angelic birth announcements in two very different circumstances followed by songs and prophecies of the kingdom of God that Mary and Zechariah tell us about that are just full of God's promises and truth and these relatable emotions like shame and excitement, you know, hope and joy, darkness and light, fear and anxiety, confusion and really screams of delight because they're all pointing us towards Jesus and why he came. And so let's read from Luke 1, starting in 39, and then we'll talk about those dark circumstances that God meets people in and how these people point us to Jesus. And remember, this is the word of God. So in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she was pumped. And why is this gathered, sorry, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior, for he has looked on this humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will become blessed, be called blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And in this passage, I love how Luke kind of reintroduces us to Mary. We have a silent Zechariah, a really loud Elizabeth, right? A holy, our Holy Spirit, a womb-bound, jumping John, really, and a little embryo-sized Jesus uh, in here in verses, uh, in those first five verses. And then verses 42 to 49, right? Uh, he kind of hyperlinks us with some key words uh, there to a really big size, adult size Jesus uh, and the kingdom of God. Because what I mean by hyperlink us, those key words, there's things in there interwoven that we don't pick up on because we're not a first reader, a first century reader. But 
those first century readers, they were picking up on stuff because when they read it 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, they were seeing some words there that really uh, bounced them to the big picture of why Jesus came, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, which is why we kind of need to back up a little bit, look at the bigger context of what's going on here so that we can see the big picture of how these people are pointing us to God and pointing us to the kingdom of God and really towards Jesus. So let's start back in verse 5, okay? Verse 5 says this, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, Okay, so we're just going to pause there because this very statement is a marker moment. It's a historical time stamp of a political darkness. I just want you to picture King Herod as just pure evil. He was evil, a creator of mayhem. You know, just imagine him as pretty much a, a psychopath. If you would think about the Joker, right, without the makeup on, right? He's a psychopath kind of guy, a king known for his paranoia, right, his rash decisions, his cruelty, he's killing off his rivals and even executing his wife. Okay, well, one of, his com- one of the commentaries actually that I was reading claims that upon his death, he asked that his wives would be executed at the same time so that more people would mourn. That's morbid, hey? That's how evil this guy is. So, you know, I wasn't sure how this would all fit into our context until, like we learned, we got to look at the Greek. And so, on the screen there, look at the Greek and look what it says. <gasps> We're a chaos and COVID-19 reign. Can you imagine that? Wow, that's how we can relate right there. We've been living in a season of just chaos where crazy things have been happening and where we need Jesus to really reign and be the light in our darkness right here. Man, continuing on. Verses 5 through 7, right? Now Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now they're a priestly senior citizens couple, all right, without kids. And now this point Boy, the barrenness, this would have been a cultural dark stain upon Elizabeth in that first century mindset because they believed that barrenness was a direct indicator of sin, that she'd done something wrong towards God. But I thank Jesus for science because that's just not true, right? And despite that cultural label, uh, Luke still describes all of that because these priests, they have a, a high social status. They're called righteous and blameless before God in verse 6. And they are stated as morally right with God. And they have followed all the laws and commands which not only make them righteous and high status, but if that makes them blessed right? And if you're blessed, that means you're approved by God. That's the meaning of that. And if you're blessed and approved and righteous and blameless and have a high status, well, you should be having lots of kids. But they weren't. They weren't, not for this couple. Therefore, the cultural and personal darkness would have just overshadowed them hugely. And Elizabeth would have felt shamed, not good enough, and pushed aside by others for decades. Luke adds this little detail in there to grab the attention of his readers 
because they're starting to connect this couple to another couple back in the Old Testament, one who was barren, blameless, and righteous before God. This was Abraham and Sarah who were used by God to establish God's people and God's kingdom, pointing God's people towards him. On top of that, you look at verse 5, right? And we read that Elizabeth is a direct descendant of Aaron from the time of Moses and Aaron in the book of Exodus, which reminds those people about slavery, about oppressive darkness and suffering, and that they would remember God's might and his strength and his miracles and power that brought them to freedom. And they would remember deliverance. Man, and they'd be getting curious as to who might this new deliverer be? Now from verses 8 to 23, we have a, another scene of Zechariah, right? He's a pumped priest because he's one of 24,000 at that time. And we learn in verse 9, it tells us that he actually wins the Levite, like lotto max, basically, and gets to burn the incense in the temple. And this is a really big deal. It's a high honor. And then as you read this scene, something amazing happens, doesn't it? It says here that really a, a holy heavenly creature is appearing to a holy priest who's standing in a holy place, performing a holy sacrifice right next to the holy of holies. He's right next to God. And then Angel Gabriel appears on the right-hand side of the, uh, of the temple. Not true, not the temple of the judgment seat. That's what, of the altar. Yeah, of the altar, which means that that's the judgment side, which Zechariah knows, and he freaks out, right? Because he must have sinned. He must have done something wrong in that temple routine, and now he's being judged, and he's going to die. But that's not what happens. No, instead of judgment and death, Zechariah hears good news. He hears grace concerning a prayer. And now he's going to be blessed with a son who is going to be telling people about the Lord. That's beautiful. It's beautiful to, to know that God not only meets Zechariah in darkness, but he meets us in that same space and place of life. That we don't have to be scared to death because of a sin that we may or may not have done. But he comes to us in our darkness to bring us good news. To extend grace and love to us and to point us to the Lord. To point us to Jesus. You know, I remember uh, just the time in my own life when, man, I, it was a dark moment where I was so in the wrong. I really was. I I reacted, I spoke inappropriately uh, to my late wife just out of anger, frustration, and I was just hurt because of the circumstances that we'd found ourselves in. And when I was done my rant, right, my wife, uh, uh, which I expected to kind of give me this comeback uh, and this combativeness, this judgment, but instead uh, she spoke to me much more like an angel. Right, She spoke the truth of grace and love and kindness that God used within her to speak 
really good news uh, to me and reshaped my heart and my mind and my action in that time. And I really turned back to, to Christ in my attitude and, and that which led me to forgiveness uh, in it. So I was super thankful for that. And as well in this temple scene, right? We see a little bit of that, of God coming into people's darkness. And we also see Gabriel bringing life and joy and gladness to the pain of being barren, right? The son that they're going to be given, their John, he's going to be pointing people and preparing people for the Lord so that they could be set free from sin. And the first person that is set free is Elizabeth. Right? She is set free from that cloud of darkness and cultural sin and shame and guilt uh, that she's been carrying for so long because now she's pregnant. And I love how God chooses this senior citizen's couple to tell God's people that the kingdom of God is really on the move, right? That a deliverer and Messiah is on his way and God once again becomes the light and the darkness for the people of God to follow because nothing's impossible for him. There's no age limit, no social status too high, no personal challenge that's too big, no political power too strong that's going to keep God's kingdom from reigning. And that sets us up for the second angelic announcement that happens from verses 26 to 37, which is Gabriel and Mary. And I want you to see kind of a, a different layer here that's going on around this amazing moment of God coming to life in Mary and becoming Christ, okay? So this is a, a similar layer that we see in verses 26, 27, that we see this first announcement, though, from Elizabeth to here. Uh, this is flipped around. This is now Mary's deal, which is totally the opposite, okay? Because God now sends Gabriel to a rather unimportant people. And they're in a forgotten place. It's just an ordinary moment. Uh, Luke introduces us to a place that nobody remembers. Because it's so small, it must be identified as being in Galilee. Because Nazareth was never even mentioned in the Old Testament. So nobody knew where it was. Uh, and then... Uh, we have this monumental moment that is not so holy. And it's just in an ordinary place, as we read in verses 30 to 33, where Mary, she finds out that she's the favored one of God and is going to be the mother of Jesus, the son of the Most High, whose kingdom is going to reign forever. Like, Oh, holy night, her day just got extraordinarily tense, actually, really tense. She just has been told that the light of the world is going to be beaming from her belly in a time frame of life that is ruled by a psychopath. Okay, that's not awesome. And then she's on the opposite end of the status of Elizabeth, right? Mary is a nobody. She has no significant lineage. She's a junior high virgin waiting to be married who's now pregnant. Not good. And then uh, you have this mature woman who's married and barren. 
that's okay. But then you have this well-known and this not known, this high class and this low class. We have one who is now in the light, awesome, being culturally forgiven from sin and now blessed, praised, embraced by the community because of a pregnancy. And one who is going and entering into a cultural scene. This darkness being socially cut off, shame, blamed, potentially tossed away by her you know, new husband-to-be, Joseph, left alone as a teenage mom with her parents who have been embarrassed and ashamed. <sighs> That's tense. And then, kind of knowing a bit of all that, she responds with the call from Gabriel like this in verse 38. Behold, I am your servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In that moment, Mary just trusts God and accepts the price that she will pay for obeying him. Now, I'm not sure how long Mary stuck around at her parents' place uh, uh, or how long it took for an angel to kind of connect with Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 because he has a dream based on the angel to confirm that Mary's pregnancy is, is, is legit so that he won't leave her. But I'm guessing, you know, it didn't happen right away, all that stuff, because she bolted. She bolted to Elizabeth's house in verse 39 to 40. It tells us that Mary rose and went with haste okay, into the hill country to a town of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And then if you go further down, verse 56, you'll find that she actually stayed there for three months, which will give you a good indication that things back home just weren't really that good. Okay, so now, how do we make sense of all of that? How do we blend these stories together? Well, Mary and Elizabeth, they help us to realize that following and obeying God has always been difficult. Elizabeth follows faithfully in the midst of her suffering for decades, decades. And then, right in the at the very beginning of Jesus' immaculate conception, Mary, she, she's surrounded by chaos and suffering. Mary actually foreshadows what it's going to mean for any Christ follower to become a Christian, right? Any person to become a Christian, I should say, because we're going to suffer at some degree when we live out the kingdom of God. Her life circumstances, her cultural consequences demonstrate that suffering is a part of following and obeying Christ and his kingdom purposes because we live in a dark world. You see, the core of 39 to 49 here in Luke is about these two women that are telling us about the kingdom of God. They're pointing us to the light of the world, Jesus and that he is the promised one who meets us in our darkness, regardless of our status and our circumstance. Which Mary begins to tell us even more about within the song of praise that she uh, sings from verses 46 to 55. Says basically what she's doing is she's announcing another birth announcement of the kingdom of God. 
It's God pushing aside man's kingdom concerning status and pride and power and riches back to the kingdom of God being for all those who are humble and hungry for the world to be right and follow him. And then additionally, Elizabeth links us to more specifics concerning the kingdom of God when she hyperlinks us to Jesus and the kingdom, when she says the two words, blessed and Lord, in verses 42 and 43. You see, the first readers, they would have easily connected this to a time when they heard Jesus use the word blessed as he described the kingdom. Yeah, you see, that starts to come out when you read Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes the kingdom of God being for those who are poor and suffering and meek and hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and who are persecuted. See, Matthew 5, 3 says this, Blessed, or approved by God, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven meaning the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is for those who have need of it or they know they need God. They come to him with a humble heart, willing to lay down their pride and realize that they cannot enter his kingdom on their own efforts. They come to him helpless and in need of being saved. And then you go down to verse 6. Blessed or approved by God are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, our culture, man, they trick us to believe that we must earn God's approval. So we work hard, right, to make ourselves good enough or right enough for God. And we hunger and thirst for that. But we're unsatisfied because it's wrong. We can't do it. Because we can't make ourselves right with God. It's only God who can satisfy and declare us righteous and right with him. And that only happens through Jesus' forgiveness. And we find that out in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, Hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 8, once again, we started off our our sermon this way, he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because it's only through the truth and the light of Jesus that can penetrate through the darkness of sin and set us right with God. So we can be called his children and live out the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth and Mary they remind us of how much we need Jesus because no matter the place of life that you and I are going to find ourselves in, we all need a Savior, a light in our darkness leading us to the kingdom of God, which leads us to communion. It does. It's a reminder of how Jesus is our suffering Savior, our forgiver, and the light of the world who makes us right with God. So let's remember Jesus. 
Let's remember Jesus, the one who overcame darkness and sin so that we could have life everlasting with him in the kingdom of heaven. And as we receive the bread uh, today, let's remember Jesus' brokenness for us and take a moment to confess our sin to him. Mm, thank you, Jesus. And now for the cup. All right, a reminder that Jesus, he forgives our sin and that we have been declared righteous before God and we get to walk in the light with Jesus. So let us receive with thanksgiving. Mm, thank you, Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love, your patience, and kindness to each of us. I ask that you keep leading us, teaching us, and shaping our minds, our hearts, and our lives as we do our best to express the kingdom of God. Give us the strength we need and the light to show us the way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. And now, my friends, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have a great week. <laughs>